Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Murray Williams. In the program this week, the rugby season's wound up with the annual awards dinner and some surprise winners. Athletics New Zealand's High Performance Director assesses the prospects of the World Junior Shot Put Champion and we'll get the latest from the Olympic 1500 metres silver medalist Nick Willis. The New Zealand freediver William Truebridge has become the first person to dive 100 metres below the sea unassisted and the Australian fast bowler Brett Lee's on the comeback from injury and playing for Wellington in the 2020 Championship. Rugby first, and although the all-black captain is this year's World Player of the Year, Richie McCaw's not rated the best player in New Zealand. He's had to make way for a crusade as an all-black teammate at the annual awards dinner in Auckland. Number eight, Kieran Reid is the Calvin R. Tremaine Memorial Player of the Year, ahead of McCaw and the dual international Brad Thorne. And I asked him for his reaction to being picked ahead of the three-time IRB Player of the Year. I'm not sure how that works, to be honest. Either one of... The other two nominees, you know, would have been a, a rightly deserved man to win this award. So, no, I'm just, I suppose, pretty lucky. It's a pretty humbling experience to be able to, to win it. Was it a surprise? Yeah, it was, you know. As you said, you know, the, the IRB Player of the Year was, was against me, you know. So, I definitely uh, think in any award ceremony, he's going to be right up there. You were saying that you didn't model yourself on anyone as, as a number eight. You thought of yourself as a flanker, but you seem to have pretty much nailed the, the number eight position now. So, what's ahead? You know, I want to be a, a world-class number eight. Really enjoying playing there, so just got to make sure I can improve what I've achieved this year. I've taken some big steps forward, so I just got to make sure I can keep that up and, and really improve from there. What did you put that step change down to? Because this year, as you say, has been a, a, a revelation. Yeah, it has. I think it's probably you know I gained a lot of confidence. I suppose out of playing in the jersey and. And really, I suppose the biggest thing for me was imposing myself physically on a game and, you know, the belief to be able to do that really just took my game up a few notches. That's Kieran Reid and this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. And still at the Rugby Awards, the Black Ferns were named Team of the Year after collecting their fourth successive IRB Women's World Cup. The All Blacks had been expected to secure the award again after their unbeaten run through the Tri-Nations and their Grand Slam Tour, 13 wins and 14 tests. The Black Ferns captain says winning is a huge and very special surprise after missing out in the past. When the award went to the women, there were a few mutterings around my table and the overused term, political correctness, was heard more than once. I asked Melissa Rusco about that. I think you've got to put it in perspective. At what point does a World Cup is a World Cup and, and it's every four years and I don't think it matters which team wins a World Cup. It's, it's the echelon of, of our sport and, and we've managed to do it. So... If it's, say, Halberg's and you've got an Olympic medal to contend with, then, yeah, an Olympic medal's going to win it. So I think when we look at it purely at that, I, I think a World Cup trumps the deck of cards, I think. And I guess there's a certain symbolism in the fact that next year, 2011 World Cup year, keep the ball rolling. Yeah, and I, and I wish the guys all the very best, and, 
They've proven themselves this year and they're playing fantastic rugby and, and we emulated that a wee bit I think at the World Cup so um, yeah I'm, I'm sure they're in good stead to put the performances together next year. And what about your own plans for next year? I won't be attending any of the World Cup games, I haven't quite got enough money to get a ticket so we'll, we'll see if there's any cheap ones going on in Christchurch when it comes around but um, I'm looking forward to actually getting back to work and, and doing a good full year for my school and um, Hillmorton High School has been very supportive and, and you know, the kids are always really proud that you go away and stuff but I know it upsets them a wee bit with their work so I'm looking forward to just getting back and, and doing my role really as a teacher. You must be pretty proud of your team though for the oh. effort they put in, mums and everybody yep, working full time exactly. in one role or another. You know they're either working full time or studying and some of the girls have got kids so yeah it's a huge effort you know and essentially when you're playing at that level it's a professional level of sport and when you're up against the likes of England who were professional it's a huge effort and, and the girls know that and so yeah your normal working days extended obviously with training and, and then you, you manage to, to fit in the rest of your life into not much time. So it's a huge balancing act and, and extremely proud of the girls for the effort they put in. Can you ever see a role for, for women's rugby and a more enhanced role in say playing curtain raises for internationals at Eden Park for example? Oh, definitely. I mean it would, it would seem a logical thing to, to help promote the game is to have curtain raises even in NPC games I mean surely we can look at the draw weeks ahead or years ahead even to, to see if, if Auckland's playing Canterbury in Auckland then surely we figure the draw so that Auckland play Canterbury in the women's game as well it would make sense so who knows hopefully those sorts of things will happen I mean games like that have happened in the past so we just need to get a few more I think and, and get the women's game out there and, and start to promote it a bit more. Yeah, and your own future and playing how much time do you think you have left? Um, I'm retired so so, um, yeah, I have um, two World Cups and, and sort of playing at top international, international sports since I was about 16 with football as well. So the brain still wants to, but the body doesn't quite keep up with the brain sometimes. So, um, no, I'm, I'm extremely proud of what I've done individually. And, and you know, it, there's a lot of young players that, that are at the World Cup. And, and I think if we can keep developing those players and, and bring them forward, then the Black Ferns legend will, will continue to go. Melissa Roscoe says she'd eventually like to coach, and if she does, there'd be no better role model than the veteran Sevens guru Gordon Titchens, who won the coaching award from the All Blacks Graham Henry, the world champion under-20s Dave Rennie, the New Zealand Maori coach Jamie Joseph, and the Black Ferns Brian Evans. Titchens has guided the Sevens side to four consecutive Commonwealth Games gold medals, as well as eight out of 11 World Series titles, but he was expecting to remain unsung. The calibre of the coaches that were up for the award was, was certainly very, very high. They'd all won certainly huge competitions and uh, it's very humbling to, to receive it and a big surprise, a huge surprise. I mean, when you've got people like Graham Henry who had an outstanding season with the All Blacks, I mean, I automatically thought, because the All Blacks are our clinical team and certainly they go ahead and win it next year, I think Graham will be right up there. I think that's probably a given, but from your own perspective as someone who has to almost start with a clean slate every year and still turn out consistently teams that win or win most of the time, how hard is that for you personally and what drives you to do it after all this time? Yeah, it's always a huge ask when you bring in new players into, into the New Zealand Sevens environment, but the players that I've seen, I've seen gone out and spotted and identified that could do the job well enough that, and uh, you give them a bit of time and they get exposure, they become very good rugby players and and the challenge is always there, but the biggest challenge for me is to put those guys, or those players, in rugby teams of a higher calibre to be Super 15 players and the ultimate to be an All Black. You mentioned Mills and your current crop. Can you see there taking the next step up? Oh, the next two step? That's probably a little bit too early because I had seven new players 
that graced the jersey for the very first time. But there's young players like Declan O'Donnell, Frankie Halley, there's some new younger players. You know, Kurt Baker last year, I think, is a player, as an example, in his first year with me, is, is also now a Highlander. And I believe he's got the ability to become an All Black. So, uh, you know, they're certainly coming through the Sevens team. And, and with Milioina, Milsey, and, and Christian, and Jonah, and all those players over the years, I think there's been 36 that have actually come through the Sevens team and have gone on to become All Black. So that's what the Sevens team's there for. It's a, a great pathway. That's Gordon Titchens, and this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport, and I'm Murray Williams. For the first time in his career, the Olympic 1500 metres silver medalist Nick Willis has decided to experiment with altitude training as he contemplates his build-up for the London Olympics in 2012. He talks to Stephen Hewson about the presentation ceremony for the silver medal he was awarded after the Beijing gold medalist Rashid Ramsey of Bahrain tested positive for drugs. Stephen began, though, by asking Willis about his five-week stint in Albuquerque in New Mexico. In the past, it was an inconvenience, I guess, having to uproot yourself and, and go somewhere else, away from the normal um, routines that you have in life. But after my last two surgeries, which I both had in Vail, Colorado, I, I got experience chatting with some people who were at elevation because in Vail at 7,000 feet up there and that's when I started to do some research and Dr. Wilbur at the US Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs sold me on the final deal stating that I was the only distance runner in the last two Olympics to have won a medal without being at altitude training so we figured it would be arrogant to assume that I don't need it um, but at least we'd be willing to give it a go so if we're going to experiment with it we'd want to do it in 2011 as opposed to trying it for the first time in, in the Olympic year. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. We're going to do it this time for five weeks in Albuquerque, and then we're going to potentially go up to the snow farm in Wanaka when we're down under in March, and then possibly even in Europe before some races in July or August before the World Championships. So we'll do two or three stints in 2011 and evaluate how the year goes, and then we'll make the decision if we want to do the same routine before... London or whether we just do what we did before Beijing which worked really well also. What are you expecting I mean obviously improved performance but have you got things mapped out as to, to what type of or how much of an improvement you should or might expect to see? There's a lot of different research out there and I'm really not sure um, how it's, it's going to play out. I guess what I have um, decided to take the approach is that it will give me a boost in my training so that when I return the theory is that I have more red blood cells in my body um, for a, maybe a week to three weeks after I come down. So I'll have, I'll have that period of time to really get some good training in and that will give a boost to my training cycle through a, a wave into put my head two or three weeks of where I had been. So if we do two or three altitude stints, that will put me hopefully five or six weeks ahead of where I was. So. I don't necessarily know if it, the end result will be a lot faster or if it just means I'm able to get more quality training and when I'm, I'm back down to sea level. So we'll just have to wait and see. Normally um, you get the benefit for no longer than three weeks maybe in terms of your blood consistency. You carry more red blood cells to allow you to, to carry more oxygen because there's limited oxygen in the air at the altitude. So, But after you've been at sea level for a period of time then your blood readjusts again. 
So, yeah, I'm no scientist, so we'll have to figure out how that all works out. But the benefit of being able to do some, some harder training sessions because of that will hopefully make me stronger. But there's the, the downside is when you are at altitude, you can't train as hard because you don't recover as well. So the negative is that you can't put in quite the same quality work. So you've got to just trust that the the time up here will be of benefit and just your steady, relaxed running. How are you finding it? We've taken it easy as um, we were sort of told by our coach to make sure the first week was easy and then we could get after it. We're not really that high up here in Albuquerque. It's 6,000 feet where we're staying and then down where the university is where a lot of our training is at 25,000 feet. So it's more of a manageable elevation up in Ethiopia. And the Ethiopians train at about 7,500 feet and that's where we might experiment going a bit higher in in April when we come back from New Zealand to maybe go up to Flagstaff, Arizona is about 75 to 8,000 feet, so we'll have to see. When you say you're taking it easy, what constitutes easy for for Nick Willis? Basically just barely breaking into a sweat, just just ticking the legs over so you're not um, forgetting how to, to do your training, but you're not huffing and puffing too badly. Probably about... 75 minutes of exercise a day basically so normally split it up into two runs to start the cycle and as we get more comfortable then we can do that in in one training effort. Reflecting on on 2010 you'd be pretty happy with the way it panned out given the injury problems that you had? Overall I'm pretty content the fact that I was able to come back from that surgery and have a couple of good races in Italy and then um, be in in a position to try and defend my title in Delhi. Ultimately I was a bit frustrated with some of my tactical choices in, in the games, and I think I resorted to back to some of my timidity that I had had in the past. So I've, I've got to, yeah, even though I'm not racing right now and training, I've got to find ways to just make sure I get that mongrel back in me and, and truly um, not be intimidated by anyone. I think that maybe I wouldn't have won the gold, we never know, but I, I definitely think silver would have been there if I'd been a bit more aggressive earlier in the race. But I let the Kenyans dictate the terms and... Um, I can't afford to take that sort of passive approach in London if I want any chance at the gold medal. The the silver medal, you'll be uh, officially awarded that. There's going to be a function in New Zealand when you're back here in February? Yeah, if I respond to my emails, I've been pretty slack the last couple of weeks, actually, as we've been planning for this trip. So the NZOC, I think, has been trying to get a hold of me, but I haven't been giving them much time of the day unfortunately so I apologise to them through you guys and yeah we'll try and set it up when I'm down under sometime in February or March. It's dragged on a bit hasn't it? Yeah it's just it's something that I sort of forgot about a little bit until I get invited to speaking engagements or visiting schools and I realise oh, I don't have a medal to show anyone so the kids can get a bit disappointed in that sense but no it'll be cool to, um, to finally have that um, done and it's protected it from getting stolen I guess by not being in my hands um, the last couple of years so there's no safer place than to be still not even be made yet so I think they, they sent it a couple of months ago to to Wellington to the NZOC headquarters and yeah I'll be looking forward to, to getting my hands on it. The NZOC says it it's wants to get a bit of feedback from you as to, to what kind of function you want and, and who to be there. What would be your thoughts about what would make it a the right kind of place and function to, to receive the medal in? Uh, there's two ways to look at it. Um, it'd, be, it'd be neat to obviously do it at a track and field meeting because that's how they're normally handed out. But it would also be so... Unfortunately, I'm not in town when the Wellington Track and Field Grand Prix is on. And so the other option, because I do live in Wellington, you got a lot of 
the higher up politicians there, I guess, so one option, I guess, would be to have a, a more of a formal setting and then at least my family could be a part of that. So I haven't made that decision and we'll let them make some thoughts and we'll evaluate that and, and make the final decision over, I guess, in the next couple of weeks. That's Nick Willis talking to Stephen Hewson and this is Extra Time. To cricket now, and as the Australians struggle to avoid losing the Ashes at home, one of their fastest ever bowlers is in New Zealand to torment batsmen in the 2020 Championship. Brett Lee's playing for Wellington, and he talked to Joe Porter about the rise of 2020 cricket and his burning desire to force his way back into the Australian side for next February's One Day World Cup. The last, I suppose, four months that I've been playing, I've really just enjoyed my cricket, and I think the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm having so much fun out there and I'm not putting any pressure on myself... If I'm lucky enough to play for Australia again, well then fantastic. If I don't, well then I won't die wondering. But you know, I've certainly enjoyed the last six months of my cricket. Obviously with no cricket now playing, or potentially the next 10, 12 days for New South Wales, they've got the shield on and I'm not, I'm not playing, try and you know, limit the amount of times I have to bowl the red ball every game. So I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity to keep ticking over my cricketing skills whilst uh, there's no cricket going on back in Australia. A uh, bit of a chat happening, we've got the ball rolling and you know, here we are today. So I'm um, very much looking forward to it. I've been I've been asked through a few people, you know, would I come back and play Test cricket? But look, I'm happy with playing, you know, like a decade of, of Test cricket. There had to come a point in time where I had to hang up the boots to look after my body, but also from a lifestyle point as well. I didn't want to be on the road for 300 days per year. I loved every single moment of playing Test cricket, but certainly there'll be no chance of making a comeback. Hit a couple of one, high 140s, um, t- tipping 150 uh, on a pretty slow wicket. So um, I'm hoping this Wellington breeze behind me, and if I'm lucky enough to get the breeze, we'll wait and see. But um, yeah, we'll see, we'll see how things pan out. The Black Caps haven't been faring so well lately. Have you had a chance to have any ideas or thoughts on why they're going so badly, particularly the one day side? Yeah, look, I think it's a bit like what Australia's going through as well. There are, there are a lot of new players coming through. It's going to take time to build it. But look, we've had some amazing memories, Australia versus you know the Kiwis in you know recent, well, the last 10, 12 years that I've been involved. It's, it's just a matter of the time will come where they'll get the opportunity to get back in there and play some really good cricket again. And 2020 cricket, do you see that the new form of the game or the newest form of the game as throwing a lot of people like yourself perhaps a career life on and coming to the end of their careers where their backs might not be as strong as they once were, fast bowlers in particular? Do you see 2020 as an avenue to, to keep your international career alive and strive for higher honours even though you may not want to keep playing test cricket? Look, I, I see 2020 cricket as excitement plus. And, you know, the old saying goes that, you know, the parents take their kids to watch test cricket where the kids take their parents to watch 2020 cricket. I like the fact it starts at 5pm most times. It's, it's play, you know, the, the whole sunburn issue doesn't come into play. Guys and girls can come down after work. The kids, you know, are, you know have actually finished school. Last just over three hours. So test cricket will always be there and should always be there because, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's the best form of the game. 50-over cricket, unfortunately, looks like it's on the slide down. And 2020 cricket now with all the, um, the sort of atmosphere and you have to listen to what people want as well and brings a different demographic of people to the match. I've always been a massive fan of 50-over cricket. Oh, that's, that's where we, you know, we learn our trade playing, I suppose, in front of, you know, with the, the PJs on, you know, we call it with the coloured clothing. So... It was very, very exciting when 50 over cricket was introduced and it, I suppose it gave a bit of a change away from test cricket. But 2020 cricket's now, it's there, it's definitely here to stay and it's exciting plus. And do you think a lot of guys that play 2020 cricket take a break from, say, the test side and go away? Can it be quite revitalising for some of you guys that have perhaps played long, sort of five-day matches all season and then you get a break and get to go and have a bit of fun? Does it re-inspire your love for cricket? Yeah, it does. And as I said, it's, it's a different format of the game. I think when we first started, we didn't know what was good figures. You know, if you get... 40 runs of four overs is that good or if you get 24 runs of four overs is that good 
now there's, you know, obviously people around the world and kids around the world that just want to play 2020 cricket, which is exciting. We still want to make sure that we push, you know, young kids to keep playing test cricket. But any young kid coming out that can swing a bat or bowl, bowl decent, decent wheels or, you know, can, hit, can sort of hit the stumps, fielding as well is very, very important. It's exciting for the youngsters coming through. You were involved in some pretty strong and successful Ashes cricket sides for Australia. The feeling in the dressing room must have been markedly different when you were there than it is now. How do you think the boys are coping with that atmosphere? It's never nice when you're on a, I suppose, like a losing streak as Australia is at the moment, and I mean that with all due respects. I've played in an era where I was so lucky, you know, I'll cherish that you know, forever because we, I play, you know, like the two war boys, Adam Gilchrist, the legends, Gilchrist, you know, Martin, all, all those types of players that are an absolute superstars, you know, within their own right. Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath, just to, just to name a few pretty solid lineup. These days there's only two players that from the last Ashes series in Adelaide that we won. Ricky Ponning and and Mike Hussey were the only two players that were playing so it's, it's been a massive change. In terms of the young guys that are in the squad now, do you think they've got the resolve to bounce back and do you think they've got the right mix in that squad? Yeah, and I think it's good for them as well. You know, they, they haven't been I suppose given something on a, you know a, a silver platter, you know, that they've, they've had to work so hard for the you know wickets and runs, and it's going to make that that toughness come out in them. I think. So. It seems like from an outsider looking in, the, the fast bowlers in particular may be lacking a bit of wicket taking power. Do you see that Aussie are lacking a bit of strike power? Do you think there's some guys out there that maybe should be given a chance? Oh look, there's um, some serious depth around Australia. That's that's the thing. There's there's 10, 12, potentially 15, 16 guys in Australia that could have all played their first test in Brisbane. Some young guys coming through as well. So look, Australian cricket's very healthy. We have to. We have to find the right blend and I suppose you know the right mix where everyone can complement each other when a side isn't winning you know the media look to try and ask the captain what's going on when the captain's playing well and you know when Australia's winning well the captain's getting all the you know the pats on the back as well so it's that's catch 22 but Australia's going to hang in there I'm sure that with months to come that Australian team will be in decent shape that's Brett Lee talking to Joe Porter and this is Extra Time a web only program from Radio New Zealand Sport I'm Murray Williams the New Zealand free diver William Truebridge has become the first person to dive 100 metres under the sea on a single breath of air, without weights or fins. Truebridge bettered his own previous world record of 95 metres, descending 100 metres into Dean's Blue Hole on Long Island in the Bahamas. It took 4 minutes and 10 seconds, and Truebridge told Stephen Hewson it was even tougher than he imagined. I guess just because of the, the, the pressure that I've brought on myself for it and the uh kind of importance of the number has been much more difficult than my previous world record attempts. You achieved the, the feat yesterday, but it was ruled out on a technicality. Yeah, yesterday I um, completed the dive, and it was actually easier than today because we had um, some cold weather that came through. But on yesterday's dive, I came to the surface, and there's a surface protocol that you have to complete after the dive in order to make it a valid dive. And part of that is taking off the, the gear that's on your face, so uh, the goggles and the nose clip. And for some reason, I, I guess I just lost concentration and forgot to take off the nose clip um, before I made the OK sign and said I'm OK. And that disqualified me, so this morning I had to have another attempt at it. Was there at any stage going down that you, you thought you weren't going to get there? Not on the way down. The way down is actually remarkably easy because at about 30 metres, our body, the lungs collapse to the point where the body becomes negatively buoyant. And so I can actually just sink in a, what we call the free fall uh, from that depth all the way to the bottom plate. And all I need to worry about is equalizing my ears. So during the way down, I'm just concentrating on relaxing and anticipating the swim on the way up after the turn. It's that coming back up. Is that the, the most difficult part? Yeah, yeah. So I have to... Um, 
work to earn every meter on the way back up because I'm going against the, the weight of my body. It takes me maybe seven strokes to swim down to 30 meters from where I free fall. But on the way back up from 100 to the surface is 34 strokes. Having achieved this mark, is there anything left for you to do? My main kind of motivation with freediving isn't so much setting world records or achieving kind of historic depth so much as just exploring what we're capable of underneath the water and, and redefining this idea of the human aquatic potential. So I'm not going to stop at, at, at 100. I'll try and push on deeper over the years and, and see where I can get to. What do you think is capable? It's hard to kind of put any kind of figure to it. If someone asked me, is, is 105 possible, I'd definitely say yes, but uh, 120, I wouldn't be so sure. That's William Truebridge talking to Stephen Hewson, and this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. To track and field now, and it looks as if Valerie Adams isn't going to be New Zealand's only world beater in the shot put circle. The world junior champion, Jack O'Gill from Auckland, is only 15 and already holds the world record in both the 5kg and 6kg shot for every age group from 14 to 17. Gill became the youngest ever male junior world champion, winning in Canada this year with a 22.53 metres throw, bettering much bigger and older opponents. His latest record came at the secondary schools championships in Hastings, where he beat the under-18 record by 63 centimetres, throwing 23.86 metres. The Takapuna Grammar student doesn't look like a typical shot putter, although he's bulked up a bit this year, but Athletics New Zealand's high-performance director says there's a different kind of shot putter coming through, and Gill exemplifies this trend. However, Kevin Ankrum told Richard Wayne there's a risk Gill may plateau and burn out when, if he's managed properly, he'll realise he has a long career ahead of him. I saw him throw three times here at the last uh, secondary school championships, and yeah, it's quite impressive. He's far beyond what a 15- or 16-year-old kid is capable of doing. Again, that's quite impressive. I, I guess we have to run into um, some reality is, is that when he moves up to that next level and that next heavier shot, it's a big transition. And um, But, yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, and, and again, and again if, if you look statistically, there are plenty of phenoms that, are, that accomplish what he does and then kind of fizzle out at a, a younger age, and I guess that's always our concern. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and again, if he continues to progress, great. I mean, we're absolutely ecstatic that we have yet another superstar in that event area. But I guess just, you know, again, I think there is a process of developing. And in his case, you worry, is he developed too quick, too early? Or is he really just that natural, what we would consider kind of a, the athletic freak that goes on just to be just the superstar of all time? Well, time will tell. What do you think it is? Because he doesn't appear to be necessarily the normal physique for shot put, although he has bulked up a little bit recently, so we're, yeah. you know, assuming he's, he's doing some weights and working on that sort of thing. Is, is he on a certain training program, and, and how come he's so good given he doesn't look like a shot putter? Well, you know, shot's not someone who's historically that's been looked at as the most overweight, biggest person, but really the shot, especially uh, the rotational, is about speed and quickness and strength. And as more and more as we go along, you're starting to see in some of those events, if you look at especially at the, uh, the Olympic level, you got guys that are, you know, two meters, two meters five, two meters nine, that are lean or big, but they're not, you know, they're not overweight anymore. So, I mean, for him, he's just got really, he's just very explosive and very strong. 
and I think for the most part, again, that's what you take into consideration that he's, he's got a pretty rigorous training program. And for a young athlete, um, that's probably why he's so far advanced, but statistically and historically, those that are at that and do that quick, quite early tend to fizzle off or at some point in time, plateau to a certain degree. Um, and that's, again, that's our concerns and that's our worries. And that's what we're trying to help through that transition that that, that, that doesn't happen. How do you do that? How do you keep them from, from burning out and just being a prodigy? Well, that's what we have to really get in the ear of the parents and the coach. And I think Didier, is, uh, Didier, who's the coach, is actually quite knowledgeable and knows where he's going. I think the biggest challenge is ultimately is, is around the athlete and the, and, and the parents and saying, hey, you know, realize that you've got to think longer-term development. And I'm sure that they're just pushing full full blast. You know, do everything we can to be the best we can now, but in realizing that, you know, a career for him could be over the next 10 to 15, literally the next 10 to 15 years. And, you know, one all it takes is one injury and this guy's done. Um, so educating that person and getting them to know that there will be peaks, ups and downs, and um, knowing that you don't have to push so hard so early to get results because if he is that talent, it will come with time. And that's about education. And then just trying to continually get that buy-in from the parents and the athlete themselves. So I think the coach understands. But again, you're so excited about being the best, it's hard to stop. You know, it's hard to pull back. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? From what I've seen, from what he said himself, that he's. I mean, I'm not sure how much the parents are pushing him, but he he certainly seems very, very focused and completely yeah. into it. He saw in yeah. an interview on the weekend. He, he said, "You know, I want it. You know, I, I think I can be yeah. the best, and I want that." You know? And you can't buy that. You can't teach that. So that's the great thing about it. I mean, you know, how, how many times do we see kids with talent, or you know, we say potential? How is that fulfilled? You know, it's filled because of the self drive. So he's got a special quality that we wish we could take out and plan into some other kids. That's what you don't want to kill. But then again, it's about that education, about knowing that, hey, this could be a career for you. And, and that, that's what we're trying to address is just, just getting that education around it. And let's take a pragmatic steps to get your improvements going. And if you continue to improve, realize at some point in time, you're going to get that senior shot in your, in your way. You're going to plateau at some point. You're just not going to go on to be a 18, 19, 20, all the way up to 30. I mean, it, it doesn't keep going. So to realize those things are going to happen is, you know, again, about education, about going through the process. And there's ways to learn through education or doing it through experience. So you can learn the hard way or, or take it as it comes. So he's still young and we'll have some ups and downs. But, yeah, it's really super exciting for everyone that's involved around him. And speaking of those who are around him and helping him out, Didier Pope is, is his coach, obviously, and, and you guys are clearly happy with him coaching Jacko. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Didier's got a good pedigree of, of working in the throws, and he's really done a, quite a good job with um, different forms of different athletes that are in our programs. And just because there have been some things going on with Valor, not, that doesn't mean that he wasn't the right coach. But for right now, what he's doing with Jacko is right on. That's what he needs, and that's why, well, that's... Part of the reasons why you're seeing what he's doing today, you know, coach is a is an essential part of of an athlete's career and and drives. But that relationship may not last forever. You may get to the point where he says other athletes do tend to gravitate towards another coach just because they may see something that they need or want. So it's nothing new, and maybe it's something new in, in New Zealand, but globally, I mean, that those things happen, those transitions. That's Athletics New Zealand's high performance director Kevin Ankrum talking to Richard Wayne, and that's the show for this week. 
Feedback's welcome via sport at radionz.co.nz and you can get the latest sports news anytime on our website. Well, we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Murray Williams. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.